I don't think I've still figured out how to work these things. Okay. Any any prayer requests today? I want to thank all of you for the efforts, your response to the dog difficulty that we have. It looks like it's been taken care of, that Christopher's found a home for it. I do have a prayer request. Sure. Yeah. Go. Um, her name is Minnie Lou. Minnie Lou? Minnie Lou. Minnie Lou. Um, a friend's mother. She's been through four hip surgeries in just the last month. Oh, my gosh. And now she has an infection that they believe maybe has gone to the bone. Um, so I'm not a <coughs> Yeah. So. Say her name again. Minnie Lou. Minnie Lou. How old? She's 80. 80. 80. Okay. I just want to say thank you for your prayers for my son's looking for a job. He found a job. Great. Great. And, um, and an increase in salary that's substantial. So, he's, so we did good. What's his name? Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. Praise the Lord for all your prayers. Yes. The is doing good. And you know, so we're six weeks out now. So thank you very much. Everything's going well. For what? For baby Wyatt. Everything's oh. going well. All the prayers have been answered. <clears throat> Father, I just met, we met Father coming to Mass this morning. And Suzanne went ahead and, I, and Father and I just took a moment together and he, and I asked him how his break went. He said he got called in to the hospital on a, I think maybe even when he was off, off on the retreat, I'm not sure, but he had to go in. A young man had broken his neck and the doctors gave him no time, said he was going to die. Father left that day and he was fully alive and things were looking good. That's <laughs> exactly what we were both saying, what he was. Let's start. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass. Your life itself, your words to us, Father's homily. Um, his focus was that you did all this work and then went off to a deserted place um, and reminded us how important it is to let go of the world, to stop acting like we have to do everything because if we don't, the world's going to fall apart. <laughs> what a presumption. Uh, we won't be here at some point. The world will go along without us. If we could only live like that more throughout our days, um, you ask us to re um, renounce the world, to give it up, so that what we do will bring more of your love. Strengthen each of us to do that, to let the world go, and to take time actually to go away to a deserted place. Um, the suffering will go on, whether we're here or not. Um, help us to carry um, our knowledge of that, to trust in you, uh, to not give ourselves less, but more one with you in whatever we do do. Help us to do that. We offer thanksgiving for um, all the good things that have happened for Wyatt and for um, Patrick. Um, watch over him in his new job. Um, let him be glad for it. Um, and watch over Minnie Lou. Um, <coughs> Surround her with your protection. Um, 
help her heart to be at rest, trusting in you, whatever happens. Uh, I ask for a special grace for all of us here, um, that we bring a greater faith to the prospect of death for all of us, so that we're, we're not as frightened by it. Um, help us to trust more, to give this life up, so that we can bring more of you to whatever time we have left. Um, and offer us um, our thanksgiving here for the work that we do together. And I want to offer a special <coughs> um, thanksgiving for the friendship that we have, um, that Suzanne and I have enjoyed with everybody here. It's a great blessing for us. We offer these <coughs> prayers, our thanksgiving, um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, just a um, just a quick reading of the Psalms. <coughs> We've done these before, but um, we all I hope in a month from now we get our health back. Um, today I'm going to do two of the Psalms, 20, uh, 127, 23. We've done them before, but. I think I told you, I know we told the evening group, Suzanne and I have been reading through the Psalms starting about, I don't know, three weeks ago. And I'm, I'm glad to pass this on to you. I, it, it would be a good thing for all of you to do nightly, just commit yourself to it. I'm amazed. I've, I've read through the Psalms, but not like this. We're doing it nightly. She'll read one and I'll read one. Um, I'm having an uh, amazing it's had an amazing effect on me. I, I've known the Psalms, but reading them nightly um, makes me come away with a very different sense of David and what's going on. The, the one thing that's remarkable about the Psalms is um, David's king. There is not an aspect of life that he's not dealing with. Nothing. You, you know after what happens with um, Bathsheba and Uriah, I think is his name. You all know, we've talked about that, right? That The plotting that he did, the cunning in David. Uh, it's not a good sin. I mean, it's, not, it's not just adultery and murder. It's not, I mean, those are bad. Really, it's premeditated. What he does with Uriah to set it up so he has an excuse for himself shows a cunning mind. I mean, the, the, modern, the modern, our modern picture of that would be, that guy's damned. Not a question. God loved him. God loved David. Um, and said of him, a man after my own heart. I don't, I don't think God ever didn't love him. And I don't think David ever stopped loving God. Because as soon as he kept into sin, the first thing, and when he gets the message from the prophet, remember, who goes to him to tell him that God is really upset with him, he goes and he puts ash cloth or something and, for, you know, and then cleans himself and goes on. I, I look at that and I'm just shocked because most of the Psalms are written after that. And what we know is God punished him, that his house is full of problems afterwards, his family line is. And I look at that and I think, what a great value for us to see that. All these problems run through his family, he's not going to escape them, he's going to suffer from them. He never stops believing in God. If you read the Psalms, this is me, when I read the Psalms, what strikes me is there is not a thing that he deals with 
that doesn't immediately involve God. There's, there's not a psalm that isn't directed to him. So no matter what's going on, he, he cannot relate to it without making God the center of it. How true is that for us? Truly, I'm, I'm saying, go to work, compartment. Come home, compartment. Go to church, compartment. I'm not, I mean, I hope I'm not exaggerating, but I think there's so much truth to that that I read the Psalms and it's so clear to me. David does nothing without carrying God with him. He's absolutely steadfast. And I look at our modern world. I'm going to go to this in a minute when we start Dante. When we start Dante. In our modern world, not so. Um, Barron, the Bishop Barron, I've told you about it. We've been, Suzanne and I have been reading. He has this one essay in which he talks about the medieval towns in Europe. You can't go to a medieval town without seeing that every single road in a medieval town goes to the same place. Church. Go into a modern city today, where does every road go? A skyrise business building. I mean, think about the implications of that for our lives. Okay? So, um, it, it's amazing to read the Psalms because you, you can't read them without coming in a way with some sense that whatever went on in his life, nothing went on without God at the center of it. He's absolutely steadfast. And he looks at God's love as steadfast. This is a murder and an adulterer. So, and he's, and he's, you know that what happens in the wars afterwards, that he's fighting enemies. He's having to face temptations of killing somebody he doesn't want to kill or being killed himself. So everything's heightened. He's dealing with massive problems. God's at the center of it everywhere. So I'm 127. <clears throat> Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. God, this speaks so directly to the homily. Off to a desert place. What's the point of doing all of this stuff if you don't do it with God? Unless you do all these things, it's all in vanity. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver, quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Notice that that's both. Use the staff for support, a rod to beat, but he's glad for the punishments. Um, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. 
I hope you all know we could take a whole hour with songs. Just uh, okay, Dante. Very quickly, um, I, I want to identify what to me are a number of assumed <coughs> principles for the entire Divine Comedy. And there's a couple of them. <coughs> Dante will get explicit with um, all of them at some point in the work. Um, the one that I'm about to mention, he will, he will deal with explicitly on the shores of purgatory. When Dante comes out of hell and they, they, they approach the Mount Purgatory, we will encounter a number of people who are excommunicated. And there he's going to deal, he's going to make very clear how important this point is. So the, the first is, I'm going I'm to make this claim about him and, and Shakespeare both, but we'll, we'll see it um, in Dante as we go along. Dante and Shakespeare, I think, are the, the consummate poets of free will. That at the center of their thinking um, is, is a belief in man's free will. And I'm saying that, I want to I make, a, make a pointed statement about it here. I believe that their greatness as poets come from that fact. One of the reasons we don't enjoy the quality of work in our age that we find there in, you know, at the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance with Shakespeare is because we don't believe in free will in our age. Darwin doesn't, neither does Freud. I'm going to come to that in a second. Shakespeare and Dante both believed, they were, they were consummate poets in, in seeing man as responsible for his actions and following out the implications of what he did and helping us to see the motives that are hidden. That's why they're so profound. They open up that world for us um, they, in their treatment. You won't find that in a fundamentalist treatment. If you watch a fundamentalist movie today, they'll never go to the depths that, that Dante and Shakespeare do. There'll be some, an alcoholic, there'll be a, a story about an alcoholic, and then he'll suddenly have faith and his life will be turned. That's it. We won't go into the depths, we won't see them, because those depths don't exist. What matters is Christ saves you and, you know, Shakespeare will follow characters out, and um, um, he, he, how do I want to put that? Um, he's faithful to their own decisions and the consequences that will come to him. He doesn't dress things up. He doesn't make things nice. But if you know tragedies, I and mean, we've talked about the nature of tragedy, every real tragedy is turns. A person recognizes something. So even when he's dealing with the worst kinds of sinners, Othello, Lear, whoever you want to name, they always come to a point of recognition. Otherwise, what you've got is a soap opera or horror, not tragedy. The very nature of tragedy means people are working out their own destiny. Nobody can save them if what they're doing is wrong. But, but Shakespeare is affirming the, 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 the power, the, some inherent goodness in man that will help bring him to a point of recognition so his life turns, the peripatia, the turn into tragedy, in a comedy too. So they don't write horror stories. They don't write sentimental stuff. They're very tough-minded people. That's why they can show tragedy and comedy. They can show the worst things that we can do. They can show the greatest joys. So the first thing is that Dante um, is, is a consummate poet. He's a master in, in looking at the human person and exploring the depths of his being because he believes in free will. Just to make this clear, set that against Freud or 
Darwin. Darwin doesn't believe in free will. He believes that we're a product of these evolutionary forces. That's a very modern. The, so much of what's come to us through modern science is, is that man is a product of these blind forces. We're, at, we're part of atoms that move off and play isolated. Um, I want everybody to think about this really seriously. It struck me the other day when I was thinking, trying to put these notes together. Freud believed, Freud believed that we didn't have free will. He's explicit about that. He believed that what was at the root of every human being is what he called polymorphous perverse instincts, animal instincts, polymorphous perverse. And the most defining of them was what he called an Oedipal complex. That every, every boy, every young man, every, every male would grow up wanting to murder his father and sleep with his mother. That those are basic to every human being. And you know where he got that. I mean, you, you got that from Sophocles. The great irony, God, it just this drives me nuts. The great irony of that insight is that he made it universal when it's a particular thing, he said, that defines all of us. But he did it to the expense of Sophocles himself. Um, because after Oedipus Rex, Sophocles writes Oedipus at Colonus. And in Oedipus at Colonus, he goes back to, he, he travels to Athens at the, on the, by the will of the gods, and his experience is something that's like Mary's assumption the gods take him up or down in a holy action. He dies happy. I believe the Oedipus that's at the end of Oedipus Rex is one of the most glorious figures in literature. He's blinded himself. He's got blood all over him. I think he's a beautiful man. He sees his crimes. It's a horror, but he sees something nobody else in the play does. He's much more faithful to what's true than anybody else. He sees the depths of his sins. When he dies in Colonus, there's a holiness to him. He's blessed. He, he, he's taken to, to hold sacred ground. And, and it, if I'm right, Theseus, God, it just, it just hit me. Theseus protects him. I've got to check that. If that's true, I want you to remember it when we do um, Chaucer and Shakespeare, because Theseus is not a... That's true. So... Um, Freud ignores that. Freud leaves us in what in his mind is what he calls the unconscious. That's an animal unconscious. Freud has no, no grasp of a spiritual unconscious at all. At all. For him, man's determined. What's at the root of his character is this edible impulse with all of these perverse sexual instincts that define our characters. The, the reason for bringing this up right now is this. Here's the point I want to make. If you look at Dante and Shakespeare, you see that Dante believed that every man is responsible for himself. What, if, you, if you pick up from Freud, what we see is what's at the root of our problems is a relation. You, you cannot separate this from a, ch a child from his parent. That defines our nature, that link. So the, the, what's most determinative of our character is this relationship we have with a, with a parent, a mother and a father. That defines everything, a relationship. He doesn't believe in free will anyway, but not only that, he believes that what defi the basic driving force of our lives is this relationship we have. 
So in the modern world, we almost cannot live without blaming our parents for everything or explaining them in terms of our parents. Now stop and think about the implications. Nothing in the world goes on. We look back to our past and our parents and we look forward with horror, generally. We're in Eliot's before after, but not here. There's no free will. I mean, I, I hope I'm not speaking just for myself, but I'm assuming everybody knows what I'm talking about, that it's almost, I, I wanted to use Plato's cave imagery, you know. To, who today looks at the world in terms other than that? We're obsessed with them, mother, father, these are their faults. I mean, we, they haunt us like ghosts, and we carry them forward to our own children. Those are the defining principles, the dynamics, the doctrines of Freud. We look back to a past, and we look forward in a spirit of rivalry. Kill off the father, marry the mother. That defines our life. Look at Dante. So here we are at the, at the end of the Middle Ages with Dante, and then Shakespeare will come. But, but Dante does not look at the world. This is the Catholic Middle Ages. Dante does not look at the world that way. We are not helpless in the face of our problem. No matter what we inherited from our parents, we still have free will and we've been asked to get free of them so that we don't go through our lives blaming them. Because if we do, we're setting our children up for the same thing. So we're going back to the Christian Middle Ages. This, is, this marks the end of a period. We've already talked about Milton. We went into the Reformation thinkers, what the, the confusion the, the exaltation of the human, the private will, the exaltation of the private will over everything else in objective reality. We, we talked at length about that. Carry that forward into modernity for Milton, the, the Reformation thinker. Now add to that this, Darwin, Freud, who, who really shaped an age. Um, I remember when we were in New Hampshire, and I think I've told you this story, but... Um, the, the, when everybody knew I was from California, they used to laugh at me because California's. This is New Hampshire. It's a New England winter state, so people that are there are pretty tough and rugged. Californians are all soft and tender. And I told you that day when I, when I, my car stopped and I had to get a tow, and the guy dropped me off. Did I tell you? He dropped me off because he had other toes to get, so I had to walk. I had on a um, a nylon jacket, a sweat, my sweat stuff. Suzanne said, Robert, as I went out the door, <laughs> didn't listen again. Car broke down. A woman stopped and made a call and a tow came and took me. But he said, do you mind if I drop you off here? I was, it, was a, it was freezing winter. If you know New Hampshire winters, they're 20, yeah, 20 below, the wind. They're in the mountain area. I mean, it's really treacherous. <laughs> I said, because I'm a tough, I'm tough. So I said, sure. I'm walking, I've got about a mile, maybe a mile and a half from the freeway to the house, and I'm freezing, honestly, just freezing, deathly cold. The school bus goes by, and they open the window, and they're all going, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Alexander. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going, wait, wait, wait. They keep going. The next morning, I said to the academic dean, because she was the one on the bus with the kids, I said, have you ever read the story about the guy in the road, you know, the, the Good Samaritan, the guy, everybody's walking by. I said, have you never read that? Her response to me, are you Californians also sensitive? 
their take was, I mean, this is comic, because remember when the, when the earthquake took place in, the take, the, the sort of comic book care, treatment it got is when the earthquake occurred in California some years back, and, the, and remember the bridge collapsed? The great take was, <laughs> all the people had to go into therapy, because they, that was the response of California. That's the way the New Hampshire people look at Californians. So, just um, funny. So, Shakespeare and Dante mark the passage of an old world, and you know that my reading of Shakespeare is that he's more modern because he's dealing with the breakdown of the Holy Roman Empire. Shakespeare takes as his theme different regimes, England, Rome, Greece, Italy, Navarre, Spain, France. When you go through, I gave you that sheet when we did Shakespeare, I remember giving it to you. If you look at his political regime, and every regime is differently, it's like being in the cave in a different aspect, because your national character is different. He was aware of that. So he could treat those different regimes as a way of showing this is the modern world we're entering into. So Dante, I believe Dante's on that threshold of modernity. You know that, um, that he's dealing with Florence, which is the prototype of the modern commercial regime. He exposes the whole commercial regime, our world. So Dante's there, Shakespeare's there, but in two very different ways. Dante's world looked more explicitly back to a Catholic world. Shakespeare's looking at a very modern world. I, I believe he's Catholic um, in the way that he looks at things. Amazing what he did, um, the way he protects mystery and makes it a part of his plays. If you've read enough of them, you'll see it. Anyway, hold on to that and, and just think about the difference between what Dante's doing and, and what people are doing with literature today coming out of a Freudian world. Um, because that, and, and, a, and the, the Reformation world that we talked about with Milton. Um, both of them believe that man's responsible for himself. Um, um, think about the contrast between Milton and Dante. Milton's a very isolated figure. He, um, most people who, who write about him say he was, Eliot calls him a, um, a not hateful man, but a, a man too alone, unlikable, I can't remember the word he uses, but very unlikable man because he was so impersonal, so cold, so private. And you know from Paradise Lost how much that was a part of his own philosophy, his own theology. God, we, we looked at those passages. Adam was a solitary figure. God was a solitary figure. They, they don't, he doesn't have a, a notion of the Trinity and what that means for our lives. Dante was different. He had a strong Trinitarian sense of the world. You know that from the, 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 um, the verse form. It's got three lines, the trimeter verse the three canticles, the way they break down into threes. I'll, I'll go into that later. The Trinity informs the entire, entire poem. You, you'll find it everywhere. I'll, I'll come back to that later. More importantly here, remember when Milton picked up the epic tradition, he darkened it, genuinely blackened it. Um, his, his treatment of Satan makes every other epic hero look bad. All of the gods, all of the, sorry, all of the demons in the lake in the beginning we discover are the prototypes of the Olympian gods, the Homeric Virgilian gods. So, because Milton believed that nature was depraved, he darkened it. There is no good. I mean, what, what Milton did was rewrite the whole epic tradition. You remember we talked about the virtues, patience, forbearance, 
the, the natural virtues are gone. Not so for Dante. Dante, the fundamental difference, Dante takes that entire past as having a good in it and builds on it. The fundamental one fundamental principle at the center of Catholicism is nature, grace perfects nature. It takes what's there and perfects it. So whatever, whatever we can do in the natural order gives grace more to work with. I'll repeat that, okay? Whatever we do with the natural order, whatever good we can bring to it, gives <coughs> grace more to work with. They're not at odds with each other because we don't believe the world is depraved. We believe that there's an inherent good. It's wounded badly. So, everywhere, everywhere in the Divine Comedy, we're going to be finding Dante going back and carrying a past forward. It's nowhere more visible than in Virgil. Um, now, stop and think about the implications of that. Um, Dante keeps calling Virgil master, father, father. He's his father. Um, he fathered him. He's his leader. He submits to him everywhere. He's a Christian. In the order of things, a, Christ, a Christian person is higher in the order of things than a pagan. Dante submits to him. So think about the importance of that just in terms of that, that thing we talked about. In, in whatever in Catholicism is, is helping somebody to make a submission, the, the, the greater importance that obedience has for what we do. Everything he does, he, he, um, he does with this, in a spirit of docility. He's learning all along. He wants to go up that mountain by himself. He can't. Virgil comes along and says, you have to go down. You have to go down. Dante has to follow him. And at every point he listens. He's learning. He's open. He's receiving. It changes who he is. So our whole notion of the epic hero, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, we talked about that, and you know that <laughs> the very beginning, when Virgil says, you've got to do this, Dante says, I can't do it. I can't do it. He, he wants to run away. Virgil scolds him and says, I, stop your whining, get going. So for Dante, it's impossible for any human being to achieve his end without the help of others. And it's not only just an individual like Virgil, it's a whole tradition that we receive a lot of help from our openness to that tradition to help carry it forward. And I've made this comment before often that one of the marks of the epic is that one of the defining qualities of the epic is that it, it carries the past forward, redeeming it as it goes. When you look at the Odyssey, you can see Homer's taking up everything that he did in the Iliad and transforming it. It's already changing. And everything Virgil does, does that even more. Because you know that, that six of the books in Virgil's Aeneid are modeled on the Odyssey. Six of the books of, of the Aeneid are modeled on the Iliad. Virgil has taken that whole world forward. Dante's learning from Virgil. He's carrying that whole world forward. It's far more communal. It's far more receptive. It's, it's, a, richer, it's a richer action. Okay, so um, man's responsible for himself, um, but he needs help. Um,
next week or the following one of the next two weeks I'm going to take a look at all just for you guys in your readings you look ahead pay close attention to the guardian or the yeah the guardians of the levels of hell Minos, Plutos, Minotaur, all of them because one of the most important things you can see I'll come to this and look at it a little bit more closely in a minute is a descent is taking place allegorically that descent is not only Dante learning allegorically we're, we're meant to understand that that's a closer and closer and closer look at the very nature of evil in every one of us so that every, every aspect images something that's within each human person as horrible as it is you know that from the beginning. If Dante does not learn to see that, he cannot go up. Um, what, so, another fundamental principle, the second is, uh, we need help. How can we change our sins if we don't see them? If we go through our world on a surface, like in Plato's case, we think everything's okay, and then something happens and we get thrown off, our inclination may be to blame or escape or do something, but it might reveal something to us about ourselves. So for Dante, the, the importance of seeing is crucial to this, the role of seeing is crucial to this whole journey. You know it is for Shakespeare too, tragedies and comedies, because you know from his plays, every play turns on a moment of seeing, recognizing, seeing something. Comedies, tragedies. The peripatia, the turn, defines drama, tragic comedy, doesn't matter. The peripatia, the action of the peripatia, always some turn occurs, whether it, it takes it towards a tragic end or towards um, a happy end, a miraculous ending, some blessedness that comes, of, some blessing that comes at the end of a comedy. Um, okay, the method we talked about, remember that according to Dante, every, every event in the, in the word as with every event in life, has four levels. The literal level is just what's taking place literally before us. Every other level depends on getting a hold of that one. One of my, one of my criticisms, so much modern criticism, is that it, it ignores the literal level. It jumps into a, another world and makes claims about a work at the expense of the literal level. If we ever take away the literal level, we take all away all others because all the others are embedded in it. It's another way of saying how important the body is, everything that goes on physically right in front of us, involving us. So we know from Dante's method that there are, there are four levels. There's the allegorical, the tropological, <coughs> and the anagogical, anagogical. The literal level is what's going on right now. We're all in this class together. The allegorical is that aspect of reality that shows that we're passing from an old to a new way of doing things. We're either stuck where we are, or going back to an old way, or going forward. If if we're growing as we should, a fundamental principle of Aristotle, Plato, all of them is, we're political by nature. We need each other to grow. The thing most natural to us is learning. That should define our lives. 
We should never stop learning till the day we die. That, that means we should never stop changing. And I'm trusting everybody knows how hard change is. <laughs> Suzanne and I were laughing about it last night, looking at habits that we have that um, sometimes aren't funny. Uh, but. So Dante's example, Aristotle, Thomas's example, by the way, this is what Thomas opens the Summa with, talking about his method. The typical example is the Jews leaving Egypt to the Promised Land, That's passing from an old way to a new. E either, either every one of us in this moment is either degree by degree by degree coming out of a condition of slavery into freedom or staying stuck. And that means, God, like this stuff is just amazing. Going back to my opening comments, that means we're either leaving the world God, that's Dante's image. We'll see it. In, we'll see it in Purgatory explicitly. It means we're either leaving the world in the way that we do things, or the world has a hold of us. For Dante, um, the world is Egypt, as it is, I think, for Christ. It's not our home. When we get too comfortable in our world, when it, when we allow that world to define our actions, whether we know it or not, we're losing a freedom that Christ is offering. So the allegorical level always deals with that question of whether someone is moving from an old way to a new way or not. The tropological is the moral, what we ought to do. Are we doing what we ought to do right now, when we leave, tomorrow, um, when we're making beds at home or doing chores or whatever our work is? Are we doing what we ought to? And another way of putting this might be, in our terms here in our class, are, are, are we taking the spirit of Christ and trying to live it, even when it's hard? Um, in all that we do with each other, are we bringing him? And I, I hope you know, for at least for me, is that, that means everything in Christ that is loving, everything that's gentle in him, everything that's severe because he had all of that. If you look at the way he dealt with different problems, um, are we really living Christ? Or, or is, is, once again, has the world got us too much? Are we doing what we ought to do? And the anagogical, I hope you, can you read all of these, the tropological? The anagogical. has to do with um, final things, end things, eternity. Um, are we moving closer to God, salvation, at every moment? Or again, has the world got us? So every, every single, every single event, every scene in the Divine Comedy can be read, should be read in some sense with this way. I want to take just a couple right now. Can you take... Turn to um, Canto 8. <coughs> Just, we've been here before, so I'm, I'm going over some passages we've done together. Um, remember, he's just passed um, the, the level of the avaricious, and he's He's in the, um, the, the river Styx. Now hold on, 
all of you, just hold on to this for a moment, because I'm going to ask a serious question about it in a second. Um, we, are, we are approaching the gates of Dees. The, the gates. I don't want to get, I'll come to this in a minute. We're approaching the gates of Dees. So the, this, these, this, the walls that he meets, comes to right now, define the boundaries of hell. Why aren't they up here? I, I want to come back to this question. But at this point, he just passed the river Styx. So it's a boundary point, what we call a liminal, a liminal point. And we, all, we already know that he passed the Acheron when he came into hell. And that when he came into hell, when he passed the Acheron, he was unconscious. We've talked about that. I think that's Dante's way of showing the, the first motions of our soul into sin um, are always done. They're always unconscious. We're not aware of the implications of it. We don't see it when we're young. Um, so we've got two boundary moments. One is the Acheron. Here's the Styx. And the Styx is that, that stream that he has to pass to come to the gates. I want to come back to that in a second. But right now, remember, he, he's just past the, the level of the avaricious. And in the, 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 the river Styx, he sees all of these souls with bubbles coming up. Because it was, what he's showing is sullenness. The, how deeply buried anger is. But it, it, um, we very often hold our anger in. And it makes us sullen. And he meets... Um, Argenti, on page 42, Argenti says to him, who are you who come before your time? Because remember, Dante's got a body. The boat is sinking. It's coming. It's supposed to be coming. And I spoke back, though I come, I do not stay, but who are you in all your ugliness? You, are, you see that I am one who weeps, he answered. And then I said to him, may you weep and wail, stuck here in this place forever, you damned soul, for filthy as you are, I recognize you. With that, he stretched both hands out towards the boat, but on his guard, my teacher pushed him back. Teacher, master, father. Dante's affection for Virgil could not be deeper. These are not technical. He loves this man, genuinely. My teacher pushed him back. Away, get down there with the other curs. And then he put his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, indignant soul, Blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. And I talked about this before, but let me bring it up again. Allegorically, what's going on at this moment? Why does, Vir why does Virgil do that? Those, those words echo... Um, wh whose words are those from the Bible? Blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. Elizabeth. Isn't it? It's either the spirit of Elizabeth when she, when she comes to visit her. Yeah. Um, be, because what's at that moment the, 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 what was at issue there is Christ is being has been conceived so an, this new divine life is beginning in her in Mary yeah? mm -hmm. those are the words that Virgil says to Dante indignant soul blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived allegorically what does this moment mean What's going on? Because we've not heard anything like this from Virgil. We've already, hold on, just a second. Limbo, lust, or no, sorry, limbo, virtuous pagans, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, 
the angry. We're here. What is that, five? Whatever. A number of levels. And Virgil said nothing like that up to this point, but he does here. What do we, how, what do we understand? I get Dante's beginning to lose the sympathy for the sinners that he encounters. Yeah. Early, early on, you know, he faints, he, he has great sorrow, great sadness, and now suddenly, you know, he's beginning to recognize, yeah. you know, that, that sin is not okay. Yeah. And I guess that kind of relates to he's beginning to see, you know, the, the, the impact or the emphasis of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I like your way of putting it too, Fred, when you said he's beginning to lose his sympathy for them. Because you know that all along, in almost every one of the, until these last couple of cantos, Dante's first response to sin, or the suffering that he witnessed, was pity, again and again and again. As a matter of fact, we, this is going to be comic, but is this a settled thing? No, Dante's learning. I mean, I'm saying this really seriously. This is about a journey in somebody... Because once we start learning things and we start to change ourselves, is the change done? No. Never is, because um, we're going to see it in just a minute. But I, but I really believe that allegorically what Dante's, the, the meaning he wants us to get from that is just that, that, that this is the first sign of a change in him that's important as a part of his journey. Because remember, I've said this again, one of the most important tasks we have in our faith is to bring justice and mercy together, to learn to order our own emotions. Because if we don't, we go through the world without deepening them, without loving the way we should. It's easy to talk about things. It's much harder to do them. Uh, go to um, Canto 9. <clears throat> about uh, page 47. Now here, they're approaching the city of Dees. We talked about boundaries forever, and Gavin Stephen, remember when he went to the boundaries when he was taking Molly, how important boundaries are? These are the, bound this, this, these are the boundaries of the city right here, the gates of Dees, and he will see all thousands of demons everywhere, and on the city ramparts, the walls, he'll see the Medusa, or she'll appear with the Furies. Page 47, um, and he said, uh, this is about line 33 or so, and he said other things, but I forget them, for suddenly my eyes were drawn above up to the fire top of that high tower, where in no time at all, and at all, and all at once sprang up three hellish Furies stained with blood, their bodies and their gestures, those of females. Their waists were bound in cords of wild green hydras. Horned snakes and little serpents grew as hair and twined themselves around the savage temples. Can't get any better than that. That's so good. Good luck sleeping tonight. <laughs> and he had occasion to know well the handmaids of the queen of timeless woe cried out to me, look there, the fierce Irenes. That is, Megara, the one there on the left, and that one raving on the right, Electo, Tisiphone in the middle, those are the three furies. He said no more. Um, I drew close to the poet, confused with fear. Medusa, come, we'll turn him into stone, they shouted. So they're waiting for Medusa. 
how wrong we were to let off Theseus lightly. There he is again, this figure so important for our understanding of what Western civilization is. Now turn your back and cover up your eyes, for if the Gorgon comes and you should see her, there would be no returning to the world. These were my master's words. He turned me around and did not trust my hands to hide my eyes. Virgil picks him up physically, turns him around. That's how important it is. Now, a, a couple of... Okay, let's just stop for this. Allegorically, what's going on at this moment? Why does Virgil not want him to look at the Medusa? This is not small. He physically... That, that is... Virgil's a man of reason. It, allegorically, that's part of what he is. He just is, 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 the depths of his reason, his rational powers are so great. But at this point, he doesn't trust, say, Donnie, turn around. He physically picks him up. This is not a child, by the way. I mean, I, I'm saying that because I know mothers, I mean, fathers at some point will pick up their child and say, do not look, physically pick them up. This is a grown man. Allegorically, what's... Doesn't think he's ready yet. What happens when you look on the Medusa? Turn in stone. Turn in stone. What does that mean? To me, he has the spark of Christ. That's what that earlier... Yeah. That's what I took from yeah. And, But it can be completely stopped mm -hmm. at this point. It, it needs to be nurtured. It needs help to be able to go beyond that spark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad. You think, I think you're right. But the Medusa, take that. What's going on with it? What, how, what, how do we understand the significance of that, that it's great enough that Virgil would actually pick him up and physically turn him? What, what would happen if Dante looked at him, and how do we understand that moment? Why are, you turn, why are we turned into stone looking at Medusa? What does that mean? What's the danger for us when we look directly at evil? If we were to see... Consumed by it. Huh? Consumed by it. Explain it. Fred. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's, you know, there's a certain... I, I guess the way I interpreted this whole thing was, okay, he's beginning to have this spark. But when you're... Is, is he ready yet to face sin full on and withstand it? And that he's not quite ready for that kind of, I guess if you will, transition or allegory. He's just, at this stage of the game, he's just beginning to appreciate why he's there. Could any man... And, and so that basically if he faced Medusa, it could in fact turn his soul to stone and he'd be done because he's not ready to face that kind of evil yet alone. Yeah. Which is why I think later the angel has to come to... Yeah. Yeah. Through the gate. Yeah. The, the only question that I have for that is, could any man on this side of death, without a holiness or grace, face evil? Period. Let me let me put this dark. Just the, the the I think what the allegorically what goes on at a moment like this. Uh, remember when Lot's wife turned back? She was um, that um, in looking at the Medusa. And I'm not sure that any man short of Christ could look at evil, truly. Because I think what Dante's showing is to look at evil is to face the 
is to experience despair. The great danger. Despair without hope. That's what despair, the fr- without hope. Um, to look at evil, to see it fully what it is, is to be turned into despair. That is, do you have the strength without Christ to look at it? Because o- only somebody holy like Christ could. Let me put it differently. I mean, I, because we, we, we dumb down everything. Angels are supposed to be awesome, terrifying creatures. We, we dumb down everything. We make Christ a buddy. Um, imagine looking at Satan if, if he, before the harrowing. Could anybody look at Satan and not be overwhelmed with terror or despair? That, that is, to, to be in the presence of evil without Christ around answering it? would leave us in despair, that we would be turned into stone, we would, we, would, we would be paralyzed, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So I think it's, it's, Dante's not only just begun to have this spark in him, I mean the crisis is beginning to grow, but at this point in the boundary, you know, defining this, the gates of these, Dante's dealing with this whole question of despair and the dangers for us. You, you know I'm sure all of you know, when you all had this experience, when you're driving by on the freeway and you see a wreck, everybody slows down. Um, St. Augustine talks about that moment exactly like that. He says when he was invited to the uh, games in the Colosseum, that he was fascinated. He could not take his eyes off. Somebody had to physically turn him. That's from St. Augustine. That, and that's not, I mean, that's only a smattering of evil. That's not, that's not, look at Medusa. Look, I mean, look at evil itself and imagine if you give that the amplitude, the magnitude it should have, what the effect of that would be on you. So Dante's doing a couple of things. Something's happening to change him, but, but Virgil's, Dante's letting us know through Virgil that we have to be very wary. We cannot, we cannot tempt evil. If we begin to think we have the courage to deal with Satan, I think we're fooling ourselves. There's a cavalier arrogance in us when we do that. And, and that's just another way of saying, look at what Christ had to deal with. Could anybody have dealt with it except him because he was God? Um, um, <clears throat> going over, in fact, we're going to even see a, a slight hint of that in what happens next. Virgil says to Dante, stay here. Um, he goes off to talk with the people. Um, hmm. Oh, here, it's just before that. Look here. In fact, this, is, this makes sense of it in one sense. Page 46. Surely we were meant to win this. So, um, he, he's just said stay here while he goes and talks with these people. This is on page 44 and 5. Dante, don't leave me, please. I cried in my distress. Then that Lord who had brought me all this way said, do not fear the journey we're making. None can prevent. Is Virgil uncertain at all here? Not at all. Do not fear the journey we're making. He knows in his reason they're going to get through. Wait here for me and um, feed your weary spirit. He goes, he talks to the people. And Dante watches them. I could not hear what um, he proposed to them, but they did not remain with him for long. I saw them race each other back for home. 
These are the demons Virgil's dealing with. Our adversaries slammed the heavenly, heavy gates in my Lord's face, and he stood there outside, then turned towards me and walked back very slowly with eyes downcast, all self-assurance now erased from his forehead, sighing, who are these to forbid my entrance to the gates of um, grief? Um, going over 40, Virgil's downcast right now. Um, he, a minute ago he wasn't. He's downcast. In 46, he stood alert like one who strains to hear. His eyes could not see far enough ahead to cut the heavy fog, that black air. But surely we were meant to win this fight, he said, or else. But no such help was promised. Oh, how much time it's taking them to come. Okay, allegorically, what's going on? He just said a minute ago, don't fear the journey we're making. Then he comes back downcast. And then the color of the coward on my face when I realized my guide was turning back made him quickly change the color of his own. Virgil lost his color for a moment. And then he stood alert like that is he's trying to appear strong. But then he says, but surely we were meant to win this fight, he said, or else. But no such help was promised. Oh, how much time? What's happening? Where are you, Bob? I lost oh, sorry. Forty-six, that. beginning of nine. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> is it that Virgil is realizing that he can't do this alone either? That he, that this journey can't be done just with the two of them. That he himself needs some help, even though he's, he's, he's telling Dante, "Yep, you, you know, you have to do this, and we're going to do this together." Virgil realizes, "I can't do this by yeah. myself either." What does that tell us about the nature of reason? It verges allegorically reason, uh, or vir or natural virtue. Reason, not, reason alone alone is not, not enough. enough. Yeah, man, and can't, man can't get there on his own. Sorry, man cannot get there on his own. Yeah, I mean, and even knowing that it's right, even knowing right that it's it's correct, and this is what has to happen, we still can't do it. By it's a perfect way, because how often do we have this great assurance from our intellects, our reason, and then it we find it isn't enough. But, and by, by the way, I've made this point. Chesterton, I thought, did it beautifully in Orthodox. He said, <clears throat> reason is great power, but it needs help because without it, it's capable of destroying itself. You give yourself reasons for taking your own life. Reason is a great thing. It, makes, it encourages in us the spirit of self-sufficiency. Really, I mean, we, we, we're so capable. Allegorically, Dante's showing... <laughs> he, he's not even looking at the Medusa now. You know, that that reason just isn't strong enough on its own without help. So, I mean, allegorically, um, we're seeing there's this whole undercurrent that's revealing a lot to us about the nature of John Dante's journey. What, what I think he's encouraging us to see through what's happening between Virgil and Dante. Um, let me stop for a second. Any, any questions so far? It's really beautiful to watch what Dante, because it's so real. I mean, there are times in our life when we approach things with such a sense of sufficiency that we're so capable. God, you know, it's scary, really. I mean, because we are capable. There's so much we can do, but it can encourage this spirit of pride or self-sufficiency. And when you're dealing with evil, Dante's making it very clear. Um, 
as great as reason is, it's not enough. And the angel comes. Remember, he's waiting for the angel. And it's, it's beautiful to watch because once that angel comes, it's like frogs, these demons you know, scattering. They, they, they cannot touch this creature. So I guess, you know, the, the extrapolation of that, and I guess the book itself, is that man can't really find salvation alone, that we need Christ. And Christ said, no one gets to the Father except through Yeah, him. yeah. And I would only add, and each other, because Virgil's going to be his guide for two-thirds of it. And, and then be, Because the pagan world, as great as it is, and it's clearly great, it's two-thirds of it, is not enough. Beatrice will have to come. We, 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 need, we need each other. Um, at an allegorical level, reason is great enough to get us back to purgatory. That's what he's going to say. That's what we'll see. But not beyond that. Beyond that, Dante's going to need... And it's, it's going to be a woman, <laughs> not a man, um, for him to complete this journey. Okay, so we, we talked about Dante's allegorical method and the contrapasso, just to get... What's what? I guess wisdom is female after all. <laughs> I, I believe that, you know that. The, the sort... The, <laughs> You know my own feelings. Have you noticed that you and I are the only males here? <laughs> what does that say? I, I think it says a lot for both of us, myself. <laughs> um, um, you, you know my feelings about Athena. But I, I mean, to me, she, she, remember, she was dual powered. She was the only god in the whole Homeric Olympian. She was a warrior and a weaver. Um, that she was capable of putting things together and having the courage to fight. Um, anyway, I don't want to, but, and since we're, my, um, one of the reasons I believe that it's feminine, I, I believe this so deeply and why it's lost our age, is because the world tends to give itself to power. It does not value that. It's, it's, it's always vulnerable. If you look at the two sexes, the one that's most vulnerable is the woman. I hope I'm not putting myself at risk here, but I'm, I'm going to say that whether I'm hung on, the, particularly because a woman can have a child. Our, our world has so lost that, so lost that in our, God, um, I don't want to get started, but, but the, the woman is the one who can bear a child, and she's always in a position of vulnerability, and she's the one to get out of harm's way. That's the definition. Men are traditionally have always been bolder, ready to defend, but they're also, because of their physical strength, the superiority of their physical, can put the woman and the child at risk. And that's one of the dynamics of our relationship. So for me, the, the image of woman is, I mean, of wisdom as feminine, to me makes sense. It, it, it's always at risk in our world. If the world is given to power, and it is, it is today, it will be tomorrow. It was a hundred years ago. What will be their position towards woman, towards wisdom, when the, when the wisdom is always pointing towards something else? Humility, virtue, another world. Um, how many women live that today? How many men live it? So, um, okay, let me stop. The contrapasso, just quickly. Remember, the contrapasso is 
Um, the visible manifestation of the effects of the sin. It's revealing the sin. And I just want to underscore that. At, at every level, that's why I've said I think Dante would make a, a great doctor. He understands the nature of each sin. That's why he can sh- show a visible sign of it. So every, every level, every ledge has its own, every canto, every ledge has its own contrapasso, its own atmosphere. Every character has words that reflect the sin. If you look at what's going on, they'll be giving the sin away. So every, every level is teaching us to see more clearly the, the real nature of sin. And what, what gives that added strength is we know that everything that Dante sees is final ends. This is in its fixed stage. However much we might disguise it in the world, this is what it's going to be in the next life. So remember, the, 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 the other thing to, the other principles, so I've never named several of them now. A third one is, um, hell is not just a place of darkness, it's the whole. I'll, I'll review that in just a second. It's a place of justice. People are getting exactly what they wanted. And so every level shows us the nature of that sin they've chosen. I've told you there was a professor, a colleague, who believed that the souls in hell could leave. Not so. What we're seeing is this is people using their free wills. They made a choice. That choice carries over into the next life. So the contrapasso is really important. It's revealing the nature of sin to us. Um, lust, gluttony, avarice, anger, or wrath, or sullenness. Um, what is hell? Remember, hell from the um, um, Dante got his understanding of hell from the um, from the ancients. Um, Aristotle said that there were um, three kinds of bad behavior: incontinence, bestiality, and malice. Aristotle. Okay, three kinds of bad behavior. This is from Aristotle: incontinence, bestiality, malice. Cicero, the Roman, said there were two, violence and fraud. Dante combined them. Uh, Takes me to this. We're going to get to the level of violence right now. And and I'll have one more more character to look at and we'll stop for the day. So here we are. We've gone through all the levels of incontinence, and now we've arrived at the gates of Dis with the Medusa, and they're going to go in. And it's at this point that Dante's going to talk with Farinata and Cavacante. I want to look at that in a second, and then we'll look at somebody else. Why are the gates of Dis here, the boundaries of the city here, and not up here when Dante first entered hell? Remember, this is what Dante calls the level of heresy. So why does, why does, he, why does he call it that level? It's in fact, let's wait on this. Let me look at fear not. Let's turn the... And then I want to come back to this question. Page 52. He comes to all these tombs with flames coming out of them, and he meets Farinata... This is the level of the Epicurean. You all know what Epicurean, the Epicurean philosophy is. Yes, do you? The Epicureans... No soul. Hmm? No soul. 
Right. St. Augustine, a lot of the church fathers believed that the reason for Rome's fall was the Epicurean philosophy. The Epicurean is the one who says, eat, drink, and be merry now, for there is no tomorrow. There's no soul. There's no, immortal, there's no immortality to the soul. So have your pleasure now. Eat, drink, and be merry now, for there is no tomorrow. Have your, have your pleasure now. So the principle of, of defining one's life? Pleasure. Comfort. Um, I, I hope everybody sees how dangerous that is. If that's all you live for, look at America today. Give me its defining dynamic and what it's done to our country. Remember, Dante's the, this is the, He's exposing the commercial regime. That's what we're getting in all of this. It's us. Um, on page 53, this is Canto 10, about line 51 or so. He and Dante and Farinata have exchanged bitter words with each other because Farinata was a, a Ghibelline. Remember, Dante was a, um, a white that the Guelphs had divided down in the black and whites, and the Ghibellines had, um, had forced Dante's um, group out and they came back so they're the constant people killing each other because of their political differences um, on page 52 in the middle O Tuscan walking through our flaming city hold on to that phrase flaming city it's the city of Dece alive and speaking with such elegance be kind enough to stop here for a while your mode of speech identifies you clearly as one whose birthplace is that noble city with, with which in my time perhaps I was too harsh, on page 53. Bitter enemies of mine they were, and of my ancestors, and of my party. I had to scatter them not once but twice. They were expelled, but only to return from everywhere, I said, not once but twice, and art your men, however, never mastered. This is interesting, because you can see something, um, honey, what's the quality? A one-upsmanship? I mean, this, this, this is hardly a soul <laughs> moving towards saintliness. I mean, right now, Dante's political loyalties are taking over, and he's got a one-upmanship match with a rival to him. Just then, along that same tomb's open ledge, a shade appeared, but just down to his chin beside the other. I think he got up kneeling. This is um, um, Calvacante. And he says to him, because Dante, had, um, he says, if it be great genius that carries you along through this blind jail, where's my son? Why is he not with you? I do not come alone, I said. That one waiting over there guides me through here. The one perhaps your Guido held in scorn. Dante uses past tense. It, it, um, it triggers a response in the father. Um, the place of pain assigned him and what he asked already had revealed his name to me and made my... Um, pointed answer possible. Instantly sprang to his full height and cried, what did you say he held? Is he not living? Um, now, Dante, so the, the father is um, um, crushed, and Dante and Farinata pick up their discussion, and then Dante has this question to, to ask um, Farinata at the bottom of page 54. And now as I would have you seed, find peace, I said, I beg you to resolve a problem that has kept my reason tangled in a knot. If I've heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds, but your knowledge of the present is not clear. 
He already got a brief prophecy from Chiaco in the level of avarice, I think if I remember. Just the first of many, but briefly. Um, Dante here, because Cavalcante um, apparently can't see the present. He says, hell, you mean he's dead already? He doesn't know. If I've heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds, but your knowledge of the present is not clear. Down here we see, like those with faulty vision, who only see, he said, what's at a distance, this much the Sovereign Lord grants us here. When events are close to us, or when they happen, our mind is blank, and were it not for others, we would know nothing of your living state. Thus you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to future things is closed forever. The principle at issue here is, remember, in the last things, when the resurrection takes place and everybody has their bodies returned, a perfection will be given to everything. So that perfection will enhance the state of beatitude, the blessings and joy for those in heaven. It'll also increase the torments for those in hell because the more perfect a thing is, the more it will no joy or agony. But the question to ask here is, um, what, what's the significance of this this condition here with the, um, the Epicureans. Why is it that they can see ahead and they um, can see the past but they can't see the present? Because in life they were living for the present. Now flesh that out. So, yes. You always get me on that one. <laughs> no, I don't. Come on. Like, come on. So... So just can you so I mean you're absolutely right. So what does that mean for them? I mean, when well, the final that's, end. That's their hell. I mean because that that is what that is what they wanted is right now in the present to be joy be merry and celebrate and enjoy all the things that there were on earth. So that's what they wanted. So now none of that is nothing. available to them. Absolutely nothing. And that, whatever that state of nothingness is, I mean, if you try to imagine it, it will be perfected <coughs> when, at the last judgment, or the, when the body's the res at the point of the resurrection. So, so interesting. This is the level of heretics, heresies, that they believe a certain thing, and all beliefs have implications. There's a meaning to the beliefs that we hold. And we've seen that at every level, and we're seeing it really explicitly here, that this is what they wanted, this is what they have, and it will be worse in end times. Um, now let me come back to this. Why does he place heresy here? Remember the three levels. There's the level of incontinence. The level of violence, we're going to look at, we're entering it now, and the level of fraud. But Dante places this, the city, that is, incontinence and malice, or whatever bestiality. He places the cities of the, um, the boundaries of the city of Dees here. This is Dees, the city. Remember, we've talked about the importance of the city. Every work we've talked about, the import, how important the city is. The New Jerusalem, the antitype. This is the antitype. Why does he put heresy here? Is it the order where beyond that point the violence has been against God? <coughs> you, you know, you, you look at you, you know, 
if, if, if you commit suicide, for example, you know, you basically, you, you made the decision to choose when the body separates from the soul, and you, you haven't done that for God. You know, fraud is, is, is a violence, is a, is a direct intentional violence against God. And I just, I mean, I had the same question, and the only thing I could come up with is everything beyond this gate is a more direct violence against God, and therefore closer to... Although every Satan. sin is, that's the problem. In, well, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. I, but that's the best I can come yeah. up with. Anybody else? I think what Dante's doing is showing how important the intellect is in our sins. Incontinence is a weakness. So you can hold a belief and still not um, have the strength to stop a sin. You can still believe the right thing. Here, what Dante's showing is the intellect becomes, I think, more, more directly involved. I mean, your word, what was it, more, you said more directly or something, I can't remember your word, Fred, but I think, I think what we can say is that, that the, the will... Hmm? More intentional. So, yeah, that the, the will becomes more involved at this point in it, because it acts off of a belief. So the, the will above that is weak. So somebody could have held a... a, a fair enough, I mean, uh, Francisca, for all we know, is Catholic. Most of the sinners to this point have been Catholic. Um, but their sins are sins of incontinence. And remember this, because this is going to be crucial when we turn. When we get to purgatory, what we're going to see is there is not anybody in purgatory who's not a sinner. Sin is not what puts somebody in hell. David was a sinner. Sin is not what puts somebody in hell. It's a refusal to repent, to change. And trusting everybody carries that in your depths of your heart when you go to confession. Why do we go otherwise? We want help changing. So I think what he's doing is showing how much more active the intellect becomes and how much more willful or intentional, deliberate, the will becomes in its sin. It sets out to do harm. In, at the level of incontinence, people are not intending. They, you know, these are, these are weaknesses. I mean, that's where we're finally going. I want to jump ahead to just one more canto, and then we'll stop for the day. Can you take a look at um, Canto 14, I think it is? Or 13, sorry. 13. Dante has now passed into the level of violence. It's the middle section. Remember the Trinity is always implied here. Um, it's the middle section in which, in which the sins of violence will be punished. And that level consists of three, three levels. The sins against one's neighbor, the sins against oneself, and the sins against God. Um, in the sins against one neighbor, Dante and Virgil um, come by this stream of blood or this place of blood, boiling blood. I think the contrapasso was meant to show exactly that state that they were so enraged, their blood was boiling that they actually took, committed a violence against somebody else. Um, and then he comes to the wood of suicides in which 
he's faced with all these branches with harpy-like figures who are snapping at things and he hears a voice. I want, I want to look at this because it's, it, it so directly involves um, Virgil on page 68. Um, Wide-winged they were with human necks and faces, their feet are clawed, their bellies fat and feathered, perched on the trees, they shriek their strange laments. Dante hears a voice speaking. Virgil tells him um, to break it off um, towards the bottom towards the bottom of 68. Around me wails of grief were echoing, and I saw no one there to make those sounds. Bewildered by all of this, I had to stop. I think perhaps he thought I might be thinking that all the voices coming from those stumps belonged to people hiding there from us. So my teacher said, Teacher, if you break off a little branch of any of these plants, what you what you are thinking now will break off too. <laughs> and slowly raising up my hand a bit, I snapped the tiny branch of a great thorn bush in its trunk, cried, why are you tearing me? Um, the top of 69, men we were once, now we are changed to scrub. But even if we had been soul, souls of serpents, you had, your hand should have shown more pity than it did like a green log burning at one end and only sputtering at the other, oozing sap and hissing with the air it forces out. So from that splintered trunk a mixture poured of words and blood. I let the branch I held fall from my hand and stood there stiff with fear. A wounded soul, my sage replied to him, if he had only let himself believe what I had read in verses I once wrote, what he had read in verses I once wrote, he never would have raised his hand against you, but the truth itself was so incredible, I urged him on to do the thing that grieves me. Tell him who you are. So, um, Pierre will tell the story now. Go down a few lines. I am one that held both of the keys that f um, fitted Frederick's heart. This is one of the men who wanted to defeat Rome, to conquer Rome, to get control of the north and south of Rome with the belief that it would give him control of all of Europe under the emperor. Um, <clears throat> I turned them both. He had both keys. Locking and unlocking with such finesse that I let few into his confidence. I was so faithful to my glorious office, I lost not only sleep, but life itself. Next page. That courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household with her adulterous eyes, mankind's undoing, the special vice of courts, inflamed the hearts of everyone against me. I think that's envy. People were so envious of him. By the way, we're going to find the same thing with Boethius when the Senate turns. That Remember, what are the two driving spiritual sins of the commercial regime? Pride and envy. That's what spurs the... To get above everybody else or to want to take away what others have because you don't. Inflame the hearts of everyone against me, and these inflamed, inflamed in turn Augustus, that was Frederick, and my happy honors turned to sad laments, my mind moved by scornful satisfaction, believing death would free me from all scorn, made me unjust to me, who was all just. He only did what he should have done, he was right. But once he loses his position, if that's what he's lived for all of his life, what happens? Takes his life. Think about the number of people who live only for material wealth when it's something, whatever circumstances, takes it away, the position that they're in. By these strange roots of my tree, I swear you will never once, by these strange roots of my own tree, I swear to you that never once did I break faith with my Lord, who was so worthy of all. 
He did absolutely everything he should have done right. If one of you should go back to the world before the memory of me who here remained cut down by the flow that envy gave, my poet paused a while then said to me, since he's silent now, don't lose your chance, ask him here, there's more you wish to know. Why don't you keep on questioning, I said, and ask him, for my part, what I would ask for, I cannot, since pity choked my heart. <laughs> so how alive is that spark? <laughs> I mean, what, what's wonderful about this, it's so human, truly human. I mean, when you start to change, it's not like, you're right. Um, but I hope you're watching, I mean, there's, there's a real interesting drama taking place. Dante's learning, genuinely learning, stage by stage. I think we're to understand, bless you, indignant soul. Dante was indignant. He should have been. Not to have been indignant would have been a fault in his, Virgil blesses him. That clearly something's happening. Um, but the pity is, you know, still, it's, it has a strong hold of him. So go back, to, there's a couple of things that I want to look at here. Um, when Virgil says, oh, the lines where he said, if he would have listened to me. <coughs> if he had listened to what, Um, middle of page 69, O wounded soul, my sage replied to him, if he had only let himself believe what he had read in verses I once wrote, he never would have raised his hand. Remember, the, Dante comes to this place, he breaks off a bush and it starts bleeding and speaking. Virgil is saying that in his own work, if Dante had believed the way he should have, what Virgil wrote, there would have been no mystery. Do you guys remember what that was in Virgil's Aeneid? Those who have done it. In the, in the, in when Dante, remember, gets to Carthage, he's with Dido, and he tells the story of Troy's fall. And he'll begin to, to describe the adventures that he had, the destruction of Troy, he describes all that happened. And then he, he accounts all of the journeys, the efforts that he made. We, those of you, sorry, those of you who were here should do that work again. It's just, it's becoming dearer and dearer to me the older I get. He sets off to found Rome, and he fails again and again and again, and he keeps making what are dying cities. There's something wrong at every point. And what we're watching is, um, I think, what can be described as a calling. Turn a corner, expect to see it, there it is. You think you've got it. You think you've got it now, and you're doing what you should, and you find you're failing again. He goes on for eight years. This is like, this is the counterpart to Odysseus. But the fundamental difference is Odysseus is half, you know, eight years with Calypso, Aeneas is trying to found Rome. He's trying to do what the gods are asking, and we, we learn what the cost of this eternal city is going to be. Eight years he goes on and fails again. And I remember saying to the class, this is not for faint souls. He, he, he does nothing but fail. But the in the first effort, when he leaves Troy, he goes to the island right off the coastland to found his first city. He builds an altar, and then he breaks a bush to make a sacrifice, and the bush speaks to him. Palinurus, I can't remember. It's been so Palidorus, Palinurus, I think. Who speaks to him and says, you don't want to build your city here because a betrayal took place. And he recounts the betrayal. It's called the bleeding. It's the famous bleeding bush 
episode, right after Troy's destroyed. And Virgil's saying to him, here, if you'd only believed, what do we, t allegorically, that nature speaks to us, that we don't pay attention, the, the more in a modern world that, that it's just this stuff out there. I've talked again and again. Oh, the other work that I thought about doing, God, just remind me of this. <laughs> Sorry. The other work I thought about doing, Scarlet Letter. It would, it would line up with, with Melville's Moby Dick because the two became great friends when they read each other. We made, I, I, Ten years or so. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll do that. I did my dissertation on that. I, had, I haven't gone back to that in 40 years, but we may do the... Um, nature speaks. Nature speaks. How often do we hear it? Um, Alec, what's the contrapasso? What's the contrapasso? What are we learning here? And, and then I just have one question to ask you and we'll leave. What's the contrapasso? <coughs> well, the, the person chose to separate the soul from the body on its own. And the result of that is that their soul and their body are going to be separate forever, yep. even after Christ's return. Yep. So they're going to get, once again, exactly what they, yep. Yep. What they chose. Yep. Um, and it'll get worse at the end times. Like the rest, we shall return to claim our bodies, but never, this is 71, but never again to wear them. Wrong it was for a man to have take, to have again what he once cast off. Then they go and, and Dante sees the profligates as a part of the circle. Because like the suicides, um, um, they didn't make good use of the goods that they had. So the, the profligates are in the same circle. Um, here's just my, so when we, when we pick up again, we'll pick up again in the, in the next level. It's at this level that we'll, we'll meet the sodomites, homosexuals, the, the users, the people who who use what God gave them in a bad way. So we'll meet a number of people, and I want to take more time with them because it, to me, they, they so much more directly image the commercial regime, the, what, we, what, what we're after in our world. But I want to ask, I want to leave you with this question. We've gone through, what, um, virtuous pagans, lust, gluttony, avarice, sullenness, heresy, and a couple of levels of violence. So Dante's been asked to look at the sins of incontinence, the, the sins in which somebody has to learn to overcome a weakness to get on, um, the, the dangers of giving into it, and then sins that involve the, the will more actively um, in, the, in the level of, in the violence and in the fraud. Here, here's my question. We've been watching this now level after level after level. How can we escape any of this? The lust, the gluttony, avarice, wrath, violence against ourselves or others, the waste of ourselves, that's suicide, the profligates, the waste of the goods that we have, they're there. How can we escape any of this without virtue, without practice in a virtue? If we grew up in a world in which we have no notion of that, what do we do in our defense of these things? I'm asking this really honestly. Um, I mean, a part of the word believes you're saved. It's over. 
if, you, if you're not a part of that world, what do you do? What do you do? To, to, if grace perfects nature, um, what are we doing to help grace? We know it's impossible to attain heaven without the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity, but what do they work with? To what do they give a perfection if not these natural virtues? Moderation, prudence, fortitude, justice. Those are the natural. You know, I've been harping them, but how do we escape this if we're not actively, actively trying to become more virtuous? Because otherwise, the danger is, isn't the danger that we let the world have its way with us. And the danger is we can become worse and worse and worse. So I just want to leave that question. You know, we're here in the middle of hell and we're experiencing all of these evils. We won't see the answer to them until purgatory. I mean, then Dante will answer them. But at this point, I just want to ask the question, how do we escape them? If, particularly if they have this extraordinary power that they have, as, as we're seeing here. Okay. Good to see you all again. Good to see you all, truly.